Blog Talk Radio. Okay, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody about yourself? Well, um, I've been a uh, cook in many kitchens. Um, started out as a high school teacher, got a doctorate, became a college professor, dean, president, and got. Then I went straight and got into uh, being a technology executive. I started schools in the Philippines and. Um, also, I worked in the Soviet Union for quite a while. And then, uh, let's see, I came to Washington, started my own company, and, uh, well, before that, uh, yeah, then uh, became a federal contractor for a long time. And in that process, I uh, got involved in a lot of uh, a lot of shady deals. <laughs> with the, No, not really, but uh, a lot of big deals with the government. Uh, particularly in um, in the public uh, public health with NIH, and also with um, the uh, Department of Human Services. So then uh, got into this business uh, kind of almost by accident, and um, started writing for a friend of mine, and got picked up by the Washington Times, and that put me on the radio a lot, and then L.A. put me uh, on the radio for my own show. So there you go. <laughs> right. Okay, uh, George Landreth, why don't you kind of tell everybody something about yourself? Um, well, I'm the uh, president of Frontiers of Freedom. It's a, a public policy think tank that was founded by U.S. Senator Malcolm Wallop. Um, he was a personal friend and political ally of Ronald Reagan's. And, uh, you know, we basically focus on trying to expand uh, freedom and opportunity. We try to promote peace through strength. Um, We believe in constitutionally limited government, the idea that uh, when government gets too big, it comes at the expense of our liberty. And uh, so that's kind of where we come from. That's the area that I, and I've been doing this for, you know, really the last, uh, 20 plus years uh, at Frontiers of Freedom, but uh, I, um, yeah, I I host a uh, uh, a show uh, on uh, radio and uh, and now on television that's uh, entitled uh, the Conservative Commandos, and uh, you know again talk about the same kinds of issues. So that's that's where I'm. That's if if you will, that's the sandbox I play in. All right, sounds good. Well, what I was doing, because we had a conversation last week, and I wanted to kind of follow up uh, with the agenda. What I wanted to kind of look at is, you know, the crisis of capitalism, the future of capitalism, futures of workers, um, and kind of follow up on the conversation we had last week. And what I wanted to do, and I'm going to start uh, with kind of a brief description where I think we are, 
And then, Larry, I know you just wrote a piece, which, by the way, if you want to see Dr. Larry's latest piece, I know uh, it is on the DonaldsonTFiles.com. I just put it up there today, DonaldsonTFiles.com. So, or I know, Dr. Larry, where else can they get that article? You just, your most recent article. Well, they can look at uh, com. It's there. And uh, George's uh, organization reprints it frequently. Um, that's uh, Frontiers of Freedom, uh, com, right, George? It's org. Yeah, even yeah, simpler right. than that, just org. Yeah, and those are... The outlets I know about, but frankly, it gets picked up. People know about so go. So anyway, that'll get that'll get you there. Okay, sounds good. Well, okay. Here's the thing. I mean, we had the conversation last week. I wanted to kind of because I think there are like three things that we need to kind of look at that I was thinking about. You know, the first thing, as I stated last week, is not just a straight line from night or straight down from 1971 downwards. You know, you did a pretty good job of outlining some of the events of 1971 that, uh, you know, that kind of was the beginning of where we're at right now. Uh, to me, the 1970s, see all the random, there were like three major recessions in the 1970s. At the beginning of the Nixon era, in the middle of the decade, 74, 75, where the unemployment rate actually went up to 9%. Uh, so, I mean, it was not, it was a fairly steep recession. Then, of course, we had the recession of 1980 to 82, in which the unemployment rate went up to close to 11%. And so you had a basically three recessions at a time when you had increased government spending, high marginal tax rates, a lot of you know, inflation, and bad government policies all combined, and, and as well as the expansion of regulation. The 80s and the 90s, you saw a relief from that in the sense that – and here's the thing – they kind of think about the stock market was 1,000 in 1980. Today is like, as of today, it's almost 28,000. That's a 28-fold increase in investments. And a lot of the more wealthier people, and what you saw in the 1890s, you saw everybody become members of the what I call the investor class, where everybody's wealth went up. But those at the top obviously went up higher and quicker because of these invest, you know, because many of them are invested at a much at a higher rate and a much higher dollar value in to the market, and so you basically did see an increase in inequality, but you also saw at the bottom movement moving up the economic ladder. From 2000 to the present, you you've seen what I would describe as stagnation. You know, you've had maybe one two years worth of growth of 3%. You've had two severe recessions uh, 10 years apart. One of them actually self-inflicted, which was the most recent one, uh, self-inflicted. And in that process, something else happened, namely in the 2007-2009, the investor class, those individuals with investments, wealth, saw their wealth, overall wealth, overall investment go down. You saw workers not necessarily, you know, you know, get, leaving the job market during this recession but not coming back 
or taking longer times to get back to work, and at, at that at dollars far less. We also had China coming on the world scene, and many jobs being shipped overseas. China, many of them, the high-paying jobs throughout the Midwest. So uh, there's a lot of factors that go into play, and to me, and and this is a to me there are three things that I see, and I'm going to look at. First of all, number one, the nature of today's capitalists. Uh, and I'm going to use this as an example. Steve Jobs, you know, when we did surveys, we've done sur- you know, I've done surveys with, through the foundation, and we would ask people, people don't mind wealthy people, but they like and respect the wealthy person who built his company and turned into the success. They're less enamored with what I would call those who come afterwards who are what you say, the executive who gets hired in to run the operation, you know, who may not have the same skin in the game. A good example, uh, Steve, you know, Apple. Steve Jobs was the innovator. He was the guy that brought out all of this. Tim Cook is the upgrader. He's great at marketing. He's great at upgrading. I mean, the iPhone 11 is a wonderful phone, but it's not necessarily any different uh, or I should say it's almost like the same technology than all the previous iPhones. He just made it slightly, you know, made it better. But he's not an innovator. He's an upgrader. The other aspect is how many today, what I call crony capitalism, in which many capitalists are very comfortable working with government and using government regulation to keep competitors out. In other words, innovation is no longer the goal. It's more or less we'll keep what we got, but the pie, they're not thinking about increasing the pie as much as keep what we have. It, innovation is, you know, and, and they have a bad innovation. Then it, there is the group I would call the conscious capitalist, which, Larry, you talk about. And, you know, John Mackey is a good example. John Mackey found a niche, found a market, fulfill that market for Whole Foods. But he's the originator. He's the innovator. And, and in his innovation, he's trying to make see how workers themselves can uh, uh, be part of his enterprise, to be you know, profit sharing, be part of the company. But there's a difference in a way be, between – and the question I would throw back and this is what I'll start asking both of you this particular question is the nature of the capitalist. Let me give Warren another example, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is a big investor in wind power. He will tell you it's great, it's wonderful, we're saving the environment. But he will also tell his stockholders, the only reason why we're investing in wind, which he does throughout the Midwest, is because the government is giving us subsidies to do it. In other words, the government is paying Warren Buffett to invest in wind. Not because Warren Buffett is an innovator. It's because they're handing them the money. And you're seeing that cooperation between the corporations and big business and government. You're seeing a totally different class of a capitalist. Capitalists who, quite frankly, are not necessarily enamored with free markets. And I'll And I'm going to take a quick break here, and we'll come right back. This is Tom Donaldson. 
uh, here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. This is Tom Donaldson. Welcome back to the... Uh, Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network and don't forget you can listen to our show every day on the bachelornews.airtime.pro 3 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern uh, Standard Time on the bachelornews.airtime.pro and obviously on Block Talk Radio Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time 3 p.m. Pacific Time and and if you want to call in and comment on this show, you can call in at 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. All right, gentlemen, um, I kind of give you some of my ideas, some of your thoughts. And, uh, George, I'll start with you first. Your thoughts on what I said, and how would you expand on that? Well, I, you know, I the, a um I see capitalism as essentially the democratization of economics. To me, um, I know that Marxists and liberals, you know, like to look at and act like it's a system where those of power always are in charge. But this is the way I would look at it. And I would say that generally speaking, markets put the power in all of our hands. For example, ExxonMobil is a very powerful corporation, but they can't make me buy their gas at whatever price they want. We all have a vote in that, and, and as a result, because it's democratized, every American gets to, to determine how much they'll buy, and that helps determine what the price will be. They don't get to dictate the price to us, but, um, but I agree with you. There's this cronyism that creeps in, and when people have lots of money, they can often buy you know, better regulations for themselves or better rules for themselves, and they can slowly kind of you know, get subsidies for this and protections for that. Next thing you know, it's not as democratized because maybe government comes in and mandates certain things that benefit them and help them. So um, I'm a big believer in the idea that, you know, every American has the right to cast a vote. And I would say economically, the marketplace gives them that power too. And I think economic freedom and economic power is important, just like political power. So I, what you said, I agreed with, and I'm just kind of, if you will, expanding a little bit as to kind of, the metaphors that I use to, to analyze it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dr. Larry, your, your thoughts. Well, I think that, I, I, first of all, I don't think that capitalism adequately, at least uh, in a traditional sense, adequately uh, describes the American system. Um, I think we're a democratic ca- uh, capitalist country and, um, and in that respect, I would all go along with what George is saying. Um, the um, so, uh, but I do think that that um, 
capitalism is has to evolve just like everything else. And you know, it's, the term capitalism came from from its chief opponent, Karl Marx. And uh, in that regard, um, it was always kind of a uh, uh, considered a kind of a, a sinister thing built on greed. And I, I, um, I, I never accepted that concept, but the fact of the matter is that it, had, it, it has had to grow. It has had to evolve over the years, and it, it, and it has. In fact, this latest evolution we're looking at with uh, conscious capitalism is almost, it wouldn't be recognized by uh, people of 19th century capitalists because it does emphasize the democratic side of uh, capitalism and the idealism, which has been lost entirely. So, um, so I believe that we that capitalism is an evolving thing, and that it is evolving, and uh, but we have to give it some room to grow. And if you're talking about uh, cutting off uh, all of the the new developments in capitalism today, then uh, as the capitalists are doing, I mean the socialists are doing, or threatening to do, then uh, we probably will never get a chance to see it again. Okay. Well, let me uh, let me put, go back to the question. Let me put it in this way. Uh, yeah, George, I'm going to put this back because some, there's a part of me that says there's a whole – I mean, it's almost like a different I – mean, and I'm going to – let me put it this way. I want to kind of put it in this way. And, is this, okay, Joe Cockton is kind of a guy – you know, he's a Democrat, but he's he's kind of a, what I call a common sense Democrat. He's for years been, you know, his expertise has always been in suburban living and the, you know, and the, uh, the trends in this direction. And he kind of made this – there's a couple of points he made. I mean, he talked about like California where you where you see two, two things simultaneously happen. One, you're seeing regulations that are increasing the cost of energy, increasing the cost of housing. To a point where if you make a hundred thousand in San Francisco, you're not living any better than if you live, you know, making thirty thousand or forty thousand in Iowa. You know, you're going month to month, and, right. and most people view hundred thousand as, uh, you know, for me that, you know, hundred thousand dollars in in Iowa gets you a nice four bedroom, three car garage, and a very nice size yard. In San Francisco, right. you might be lucky to get a an eight hundred square foot apartment to split with your family. Yeah, yeah, and like a studio apartment where you sleep in your living room. Like a studio apartment. And then on the other side, you got an oligarchy that's perfectly happy. You know, and, the, and if you look at the biggest inequality is actually in those states where you have progressive policies in place. It, it seems to me the irony comes in place is the most progressive, so-called progressive state, is a state that has the most people living in poverty, Based on the the, the the supplemental data that the Census Bureau have, and the highest, you know, the, I, I mean, like I said, the greatest inequality, the greatest number of uh, poverty, the people who be living in poverty, and so right, and so you got this aspect where the policies themselves are leading to this inequality. Yes, sir. No, I tend to agree with that. I, that's kind of the way I. 
I mean, uh, my view of that is that that you're exactly right, that the government interventions, the cronyism, the things that they do, the uh, cuts off opportunity. Um, you know, I've, when we've talked about this topic, you know, off air ourselves, I, I kind of tell the story of my two grandfathers that were not born to wealth, but acquired a certain level of wealth. Again, they, they, they never became Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, but, but they, um, you know, they changed their family stars, so to speak. They, you know, they were, they didn't have much education. They didn't have a lot of opportunity in life. They grew up in, 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 in true poverty, something we would all recognize as poverty. And then by the time they were adults, their children were able to, you know, go to college and, um, you know, they had a nice home and, and all these things that you kind of think of as the American dream. And then that continues on for the next generations. And I want to see an America where that's possible for everyone. Um, not just a story we tell about that used to be the way it was. And to me, part of it is opportunity. Um, I have a friend, he's a black conservative. He's written a book and he talks about how um, even in America, when there was Jim Crow, and he's not suggesting he supports Jim Crow. He's saying even with the evils and the unfairness of Jim Crow, blacks had a lot more opportunity. were more likely to own their own home and own a business and these other things than in today's world. And, uh, and he argues that, you know, we've done things in the name of helping people that actually haven't helped. And these policies actually drive and, and the, you know, it doesn't really do much. And if you look at the overall demographics, it seems that the only people who benefit in this system are the already uber rich, you know, and, and uh, yeah. people who already have a place at the table. But if you want to have a new table and expand the table and add a few more chairs, that's where you run into trouble. So I agree with you. And, um, and I, I don't disagree with what Larry said. I mean, I think that we will see when you have a growing, vibrant economy like we had, say, a year ago. Um, you had employers struggling to find the employees they want and want to keep. And so what happens? It drives wages up. And over time, it will start to cause them to offer things like maybe, you know, profit sharing or other, you know, larger bonuses as the company becomes more. And then they're super incentivized to make sure the company is successful because they realize that they will benefit. They're just not going to start, you know, walk in and start a clock and stop a clock in a day that they can you know, benefit. And I think that's wonderful when people, ordinary people, have a stake in the venture. But I think it takes a growing economy to make that possible. Um, and I think that uh, we've got to start having policies that basically make it possible to be successful, to be entrepreneurial, to grow businesses and start businesses. Right now, I, I just, I've run a small business for a lot of my life, and I will be honest. It takes an extraordinary – I spend so much time just doing paperwork and filling forms out and doing what the government wants me to do that I don't have near enough time to do the things that I actually want to do to make the business successful. Now, if I were GM or ExxonMobil or Microsoft, that wouldn't matter because i just hire a bunch of attorneys that would add a, you know, 10 cents to the cost of the software or a penny to the gallon of gas or whatever. But when you're a small business, that becomes oppressive, and it becomes the difference between being successful and unsuccessful or the ability to hire more people and bring them on or pay the people you have more. And so I think we have to figure out how to make sure that we allow the ordinary person to build something and be successful as opposed to basically acting the way Hillary did when she acted, you know, like 
it's not my responsibility to worry about every undercapitalized business. She considered businesses that couldn't put up with the burdens that she wanted to place on them as undercapitalized. They did, you know, like, oh, well, you know, they don't deserve to exist. Okay, well, that's why you have the problem we have right now. Okay, uh, Larry, uh, let me. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna throw out this thought to you, because here's the other thing that came. That I mean, again, there was a thought that you know George Cockenbrook brought up, and he talked about the difference between, like I say, Facebook and GM. And GM at its peak, we're hiring hundreds of thousands of workers. Uh, I, you look at Facebook, and my first thought of Facebook is it's nice and fun to play with. But it's got maybe a thousandth of employees, where we were we used to have businesses that would hire hundreds of thousands of employees, and many of those industries, like the fossil fuels, are under assault. And even let's say manufactured cars. I mean, they're basically being told, "We want you to build these kinds of cars versus these kinds of cars," and. And it seems to me that we've lost quite a few jobs in that area because we're replacing those jobs with non-existing jobs that Facebook has because they're only producing jobs in the thousands, even though they've got billions of dollars worth of capitalization. Uh, your thoughts? Well, um, I think a lot of these things are true, but I don't think that they're hitting the – main problem that we're facing in America today and I think that problem is that we are we have to transfer the wealth the and I call it the asset wealth as opposed to income uh, discrepancy and so on we're looking as shortly uh, we are going to be uh, looking at uh, 80% of the wealth in the United States in, in, in being what you call the investor class, which is about 1% of the population. And if we do that, we and this is a more of a macroeconomic uh, concept, but if we do that, then what happens is um, the middle class cannot does not have enough money to sustain the consumer economy on which our country, our economy and our country is built because if you have continued uh, uh, inflation then the borrowing I mean the purchasing power of your uh, of your uh, people is uh, continually eroded to the point where they don't even though and the prices keep going up, and their their borrowing power stays steady, which has been happening now for 40 years, 50 years. Um, the um, so what what happens is that more and more of the economy, the uh, the wealth of the economy goes to those people uh, that we're talking about. So if so, once that happens, if that takes over, and it will if we don't do something then we're going to have 80% of all the assets in the United States will be owned by a few people, 1% of the population. That means that we are then in a position where everybody has will, will have to uh, uh, talk. They, they will be in charge, basically, 
of uh, of all of the employment and all of the money that is that is flowing into the economy and then all they have to do is organize and you have an oligarchy and pretty soon you're in fascism well yeah hold on yeah hold on to that thought this is Tom Donaldson uh uh, here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And also, the doctor, this is Tom Donaldson. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. The Dr. Larry Show with Dr. Larry Federal takes a look at politics from a conservative perspective in the Trump era. Listen to him live every Wednesday from 7 a.m., 7, you know, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Block Talk Radio. And on the podcast of the show every day, 2 a.m. and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or 11 a.m. and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Interested in having your own show or advertising? Email us, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed here on the Bachelor News Radio. Speaking of your show, Larry, uh, real quick before we continue this conversation, uh, who do you? What's your what's your plans for tomorrow night? Well, we're going to be talking about this uh, different aspect of the same this same topic, um, and that and that is basically what if if indeed the um, if indeed the uh, uh, the economy. I mean the. Uh, uh, the future of the uh, American middle class is, uh, is 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 doomed, if you will. Um, then, uh, uh, what's going to happen to the worker? And uh, I've t- I would I was building up to the conclusion that uh, the only real democrat, I mean, the only real. Uh, uh, non-governmental answer to the problem that that, that I raised uh, is uh, some kind of profit sharing, uh, which is, in fact, going to be uh, uh, voluntary and based uh, based upon and the the, uh, um, the various the dis, the distribution of wealth will be based on, on merit and not on whether you're on welfare and you know whether you happen to be a citizen or not. Um, so we're going to be talking. We have a representative of the union of the AFL-CIO, and we also have a representative of conscious capitalism, which I consider to be the uh, answer to the uh, new uh, to the new the new um, the new capitalism, uh, which unfortunately is not. Uh, is apolitical in the extreme right now, even more than Georgia's. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, that that we're going to be talking. We're, it should be a pretty uh, a pretty uh, vigorous uh, conversation because we've got two guys that. I mean, my my goal in in all of this is trying to establish some kind of a dialogue uh, 
so that we can get uh, a, a new version of capitalism into the mind mindset of the kind of the people that um, that are in in power at, at at this present time, because right now we're talking about the the only way that uh, the only answer that the uh, Republicans have to socialism of uh, of the uh, Democrats is uh, the Reagan uh, economics, which you know says uh, a rising tide lifts all ships, but that hasn't been working. And so, anyway, that that's that's the answer to your question. Yeah, well, I'm going to disagree partly with what you said because I don't because I think that is still part of the answer that it does work if you allow it to work. And uh, because I'll be, I mean, the, I mean, look, we saw this in the past couple of years when we moved away from the regulation. The Keynesian side of the equation, to a more market approach, in the first three years of the Trump administration, where we saw that, especially at the bottom. So I'm, I, I'm not necessarily going to say I, you know, because I, I still say that's part of the answer. And I also think very clearly when you look at. Most of these communities where the biggest inequality tends to be, it tends to be in areas where you have excessive regulation, excessive, for example, uh, regulation dealing with you know, housing. Uh, if you look at the local counties and their regulations on where you can build, what you can build, and how you build it, I mean, these things do have an impact. And when you're also dealing with, let's say, denying, let's say, regulating energy, to the point where you have more and more, quote unquote, green energy, which increases the cost of energy. I mean, these are things government is presently doing, and some of the market aspects are not necessarily being allowed to happen. And we've certainly seen it. If nothing else, we've seen in the COVID pandemic, to me, is the number of governors who are perfectly willing to. Basically, when you've got governors who are that powerful enough to determine whether your business is essential or not, that's too much power. And when you look at the fact that a good portion of these businesses going out are mom and pop stores, they're the middle class. These are the class, the stores that many, especially in the urban centers in particular, went to, populated. And those have been driven out of business. I mean, James Kramer and CNBC made the point. This is the biggest transfer of wealth you know, in the past several months we have seen where literally Main Street is being depopulated, bankrupt, and those, and we're seeing the, whereas those at the top and were never. This was a, this was a recession. And, you know, and I've never seen it. Maybe you guys can, you know, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I've seen, I've lived for seven or eight recessions, but I've never seen one where the government basically told people, stay home, quit working, we'll pay you not to work, and knowing full well the consequences would be the economy would crash. I mean, we literally did this purposely. And, it's, and there was that yeah. mindset that's just there, that can't be denied. Now, George. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about this whole thing is they acted like they were doing this for health. And the problem, of course, is that poverty is not good for health either. We've seen, for example, the, uh, you know, just the psychological depression and other things has caused uh, 
suicides to skyrocket. We have seen, uh, you know, cancer is going to go up because people weren't able to get cancer screenings or treatments. Uh, you know, all these other things that, you know, healthcare people have been warning us of and saying, by the way, you just can't, you know, so this is, there's a reason why, you know, the United States has a standard of living it does. It's because as a nation, we're not poor. We use the wealth that we create, not just to feed our families or to, to shelter them, but to build hospitals and to do research and to do all kinds of amazing things that benefit society. And when you basically cut that golden egg off and just say, we don't need those anymore, not only are you not feeding and housing your family, you're not doing these other things either. And um, we're going to have hospitals closing down because they've not been able to be profitable in this time frame. So none of this is really good, and I don't understand. I, I, I think everyone understands the value of do, taking steps to protect others, particularly those who are most at risk. I don't understand why shutting the entire economy down was a part of that, and I don't think anybody can give you a good medical explanation for it, as evidenced by the fact that now we finally, you know, we can, go, we can all go to Costco and we can go to the grocery store and all that. But, uh, you know, an example would be my wife has a good friend who's done her hair for years, and uh, she used to have a, a very nice, thriving business. She employed about a dozen people. Guess what? She's out of business. So not only is her landlord out of money, she's out of money. Her 12 employees are out of money. And she's now hoping to sign on and just be an employee somewhere else. So there's someone who had built, who was an immigrant, who was an illegal uh, immigrant, became a citizen, and um, built a business. It was beginning to do what I talked about with my grandfather was doing. Sure, she wasn't Steve Jobs. She wasn't Bill Gates. But she had built something that she was proud of and that was going to provide for her family and, and was making a difference and helping others provide for their family. And the government did what to it? Squashed it. Said no. Yeah. Okay. Don't pass yeah. go. Gary, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry, I'm going to go back to you because let me answer this question. Uh, what policies do we follow? Because obviously, you know, making, okay, workers, I mean, again, what I hear from the Kansas conscious capitalist. You know, making you know, you know profit sharing and these things. These were things that were done in the 80s and the 90s and even before, uh, when you saw the increase in the investor class, the 401ks, like so on down the line. But I guess maybe the question I'm going to throw back to you: What government policies, from a free market perspective, do we do to move this forward? I mean, what would be your suggestions? to, let's say, this administration going into a second term? Well, the main thing is to get the gov- keep the government out of it. You know, that if they just stay, uh, stay out of the whole damn problem, uh, that would help a lot. Um, I'm sure that there are, I mean, I think there are, there are other um, uh, steps that can be taken that, that make... Um, more, make it more likely that that this movement can actually succeed, and that is, we know that it will be uh, opposed by by many. Uh, well, the whole socialist group. Uh, so I think I think one, I think a lot of it depends on what they do, and you know what they they right now the Mackey group they they're all pretty anti-union and they they really don't uh, seek any publicity 
they, you know, they're not really promotion-oriented, although they're getting a lot better at that. Um, and and the answer to your question as far as keeping government out of it, that's uh, I think that I think the only chance we have of of having getting that to happen is if uh, if the Trump uh, team wins the the uh, the election, and I think that will buy some time, so that in 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 time there will be a a third way, a conscious capitalist uh, idealism. Uh, that will appeal will be made known to uh, a lot of these disenfranchised uh, youth that we're fighting right now, uh, for example, and uh, and and that 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 will be a, give it a chance to grow and to get nourished and 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 become a, a major force. I don't think that I don't think it has to be or or even is. A political entity in and of itself, but the the the, the concept that they're uh, that they're uh, espousing is uh, truly an answer to a socialist distribution of wealth, and and it's the only one I have found that makes any sense. Um, so I I don't I don't have a good answer to your question Tom because I I I I think the main thing is to keep the damn government out of it. But you know I think I think lowering taxes and doing the the Reagan things uh, are all positive because if you get more money in circulation you get more people first of all a lot of this social tension that we have right now it gets ameliorated and uh it starts to get less of a uh, of a urgent issue, and uh, and I think that 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 uh, applies to uh, all of the the current uh, tensions that we're f- facing in in terms of racism and things that don't seem to be particularly immediately uh, relevant. But but the real question is what what, what how do we keep this anger? that is in uh, a whole segment of our population, how do we answer that and keep that in, in some kind of reasonable check and, and give it a, and give a really good answer to it instead of just saying, well, let, we're just trying to do what we, uh, what we have done in the past and hoping that it will work. Uh, these are young idealists, and, and, and they don't know anything about economics. They don't know anything about history. They don't even know much about the United States, uh, our own American history. They just uh, and and so there, there's a huge, huge um, transformation that has to be take undertaken, and and that has to do with education, not just in uh, in the uh, in the uh, poorest ghettos of our of our uh, cities, but but throughout our educational system, it's right now it's run by people. Who are Marxist, uh, you know, almost avowedly Marxist. And what's wrong with Marxism? Well, take a look at the Soviet Union. I mean, what about the Gulag? You talk about we, the the imprisonment we've had of uh, black men in in this country, and that's that's terrible. But compared to the millions of people that were uh, persecuted or sent to the gulags in Russia over the over the 50 years was it 70 years that they were in power uh, it pales in comparison 
and 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 this 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 whole thing has to we're looking at a major transformation of our of our american culture and we have to get the the luck the good thing we have is we have the structure to do that we have a constitution we have a well developed capitalist uh investment system we have uh freedom uh we we all want freedom and we have the means really in in terms of uh enforcing our laws and 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 having laws to uh, encourage it we we've got the we've got all the the primary ingredients but we've got to we've got to get it together and we've got to get some kind of uh cohesion that we can that we can uh wrap our new uh, i mean our our old ideas around uh, in in a forward looking way and of course technology is a great part of this so um yeah. uh, that, anyway that, that's yeah, my that. speech <laughs> yeah uh, hold on to that though. we'll be right back tom donson uh we are the donson files and the bachelor news radio network tune in the you and the law with chief virgil green and chief keith humphrey the show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police listen live every tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. And don't forget, uh, the Donaldson Files will uh, every on the bachelornews.airtime.pro, 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 10 a.m. in the morning Eastern Daylight Time, or midnight Pacific time and 7 a.m. when you're just getting up, and for those who actually still are able legally to drive to work in California, uh, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, and right now we got about uh, 15 minutes left. We got plenty of time. So if you want to get in, 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. All right, I want to kind of slip, uh, kind of go in a different, you know, uh, slightly different is the impact of China obviously has played a role where you have the largest country that's basically mercantilist, if you want to put it those words. And the question I would come back to is when you have a trading partner that doesn't follow the rules and makes a mockery of what a trading system should be. And, you know, how do you... And I guess, George, I'm going to throw this out to you because obviously I'm a free marketeer. I know you are too, and certainly the, uh, Senator Wallop was a uh, was one as well. But it's hard to defend. It's hard to explain to somebody in the Midwest uh, the beauty of free trade when he looks you straight in the eye and says, "Well, you don't see that abandoned building over there? That used to be a factory. It's not right. in China." Exactly. And the question well, is, see, I, I, yeah, no, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. I understand that that difficulty. See, I would argue a big government did that to the factory. That wasn't free trade that did it. Uh, just give you a quick example. If I invited you over for dinner to my house and said, "Hey, Tom, come to my house for dinner," and you show up, and then when you, as I open the door and invite you in, I start hurling epithets at you, and eventually I pick up a baseball bat and chase you around the house and strike you with it, and then you dash out the door. Um, is it you being a rude guest or me being a bad host? 
And I think it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, you know, if I'm sitting around going, wow, I can't believe Tom didn't stay for dinner. What a jerk. You know, then I'm an idiot. And, um, and I think that's what we do to business. We, we regulate, we tax, and then we wonder why they leave. American workers are more productive than most other workers around the globe, typically better educated, often more motivated because we have, a, I think, a capitalist system in which many cases they believe that if they do a good job, they will be rewarded for doing so. When you come at from a communist regime, you don't believe that. You know that's not true. You're just lucky to survive and not be thrown in a gulag. So bottom line is I would argue that um, I'm a supporter of free trade, but I see no reason to chase our businesses out of this country. And that has been the America's – that has been our policy. Our official policy has been to tax and regulate companies out of existence. We didn't need those jobs. We didn't want those jobs. They can go somewhere else. We don't care. We've had politicians who even believed it was good from a foreign policy perspective to do that. And so what they, they were basically saying is, you know, that factory that your grandfather worked at down the street, we thought it would be best for America to send all those jobs to China because we just think it will help us get along with them better in the future. And so they're basically making a choice to sacrifice uh, a family, a community, um, for some theoretical benefit in, in foreign policy. And what we've seen is that China's not going to respond to that. They have not become more democratic. They have not become more open. They have not become less dangerous. They have not become more friendly. The fact is they are actually far more dangerous today than they were 30 years ago. And so all of that was a bargain that was a stupid bargain. And that's what government does. It strikes stupid bargains. People with lots of letters after their name and I don't mean to pick on people with education. I got education. I got letters after my name. But I've got some common sense, and I don't check it at the door when I show up at the office. But these people make up these theories, which is that people in Iowa losing their jobs will be benefited in the long run because, after all, things with China will be so much better. And that's just not proven true. And over yeah, and over yeah, like, and over, they're always wrong. Okay, uh, uh, Larry, your thoughts. I know you've read about China. So what are some of your thoughts on China's impact on the American worker? Well, I agree with uh, with uh, George and with uh, Donald Trump. It's been devastating. And uh, I, I agree. I, I can't imagine that anybody would uh, encourage it again. But, I mean, what, what do we find? We find... That that they not only are encouraging it, but they're saying that we're they're going to undo the work that uh, has been done in the name of uh, various of the uh, uh, current administration. So I mean, these people are crazy, absolutely crazy, uh, and and I see no I see no re- redemption in in. That's another thing that is just going to just I, – I, I guess I'm getting more and more fatalistic about what will happen if the Democrats win this election, and especially if they win all the houses of Congress in addition to the presidency. Um, I, I just I, – I just, I'm afraid that America that we know is just going to disappear right in front of our eyes. And and this uh, their their attitude toward China is a case in point. Yeah. Okay. Let me put, let me let me let me kind of put it. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, these are some issues there because obviously, you know, how do you do a trading system where, let's say, one side, you know, again, you know, we talked about, and certainly, George, you make the point, you know, did we encourage these people to go out, you know, go out the door, obviously, and uh, maybe the, uh, let me just kind of, let me take it in this direction because obviously the American worker is the one taking it on the chin in this and certainly as I stated you know I did you know I'm not one of these guys that you know I'm not I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist but the uh, and certainly when we look at the 80s and the 90s you know did American workers did fairly well even though there was increased inequality as I already stated a part of which had to be dealt with. You know the investments. You know where basically we were. You know the investment side of the equation. You know increased significantly, and again the wealthy. You know got a good lion's share, but certainly, you know for a lot of people they had a chance to save for the future. That's been almost over the past decade and a half. It's been kind of taken away. And my problem, and the you know my you know my thought is you know how do we get from point A to point B? And I think that's the tricky wicket here. How do you preserve a trading system to liberalize trade while at the same time figuring out a way to punish the one country that doesn't follow the rules? Uh, right. You know, how do, you know, how do we go from yeah. the, other, you know, the other aspect is, I mean, let me just put it this way. If COVID, to me, demonstrates anything, it demonstrates a total weakness of the political class we have presently, which you guys have documented, and even the scientific class, where so much bad science was used to justify some really bad policies, uh, which is another show in itself. And the question that comes into my play here is you have a business class, some of which, like John Mackey of Whole Food are thinking in a totally different direction to advance and you know and take capitalism and free market to the 21st century, and then those are perfectly satisfied to be oligarchies. And I and I think there, you know, those are issues as well that there's a mindset that sits there. Yeah. Let me start with a story, and it'd be fascinating because the one story that I have is I I gave a speech about 30 years ago in high school. I was invited. And I made the observation to, you know, I asked this question, and I said, "Okay, how many of you, you know, you know, how many of you went out shopping yesterday?" Almost everybody raised their hand. I said, "That means you all bought something, right?" That means if you're similar, if you're representative of the American whole, uh, 250 million people that yesterday did a transaction. How many of you truly believe? That a few people in Washington and a few people in your state capital are smart enough to run an economy and dictate an economy with hundreds of millions of transactions a day. And the answer, nobody raised their hand. They understood instinctively, God, that's stupid. And I wonder today, if I went into that same high school, what kind of answers I would get. And I think that's and part of the aspect is we also have an academic class that has done a poor job of teaching, or let's just put it this way, how many of them even understand 
the basics of economics. Uh, that's just my thoughts. Uh, I tell you what, we got a couple of minutes here to wrap up. So I, I'll say this, Larry. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to kind of summarize uh, where do we go from here. Well, I consider that the major problem facing the United States is to stay out of feudalism. And in order to do that, we've got to transfer some of the asset value of the very rich, the 1%, back to the 50% of the middle class. There are only three ways to do that. One way is you get the government to confiscate as much money as they can through taxes, and then they redistribute it, and that means a welfare system. The other second way is the Reagan system, in which uh, you hope that uh, a rising tide lifts all ships, and so you reduce regulations and taxes to the uh, extent that you can. That hasn't worked in the last uh, 30 years, but that... uh, that leaves another, there's got to be a third way. And the third way, I think, is available now. It's, it's becoming more and more uh, visible. And it's a movement such, it's, it's such as conscious capitalism. That's not the only group or the only organization or even the only example of a new uh, idealistic capitalism that is a much more democratic in, in structure and in intention. Um, and I think that, that that is what we really have to be aiming at and, and uh, encouraging in any way we can, whether individually or in government or in, in uh, private, private sector, which I think is the most important. So that's, that's okay, where uh, I George, Yeah. Yeah, George, your thoughts. Well, I, I I like what Larry said. I think because um, I think he's focusing on innovative ways for entrepreneurs to head this off. The question would be is you know why would they do it? And I would argue the market forces are probably what is required. It's either that or or probably uh, government regulation, which will end up I think becoming disastrous. But when the marketplace uh, does it because of a vibrant growing economy and the need to attract the best talent and ability and maintain a strong workforce, then it uh, becomes not only sustainable, but a great, but a great thing. And so I think you saw some of that happening in America during the, after world war two in the fifties and the growth was so rapid that uh, you saw the blossoming of the middle class. And I'd like to see that happen again, but uh, when you have a, big government that basically decides it has a voracious need for extra capital to fund itself, it's going to siphon that off the top. And that's going to come at the expense of economic growth, opportunity, and and innovation and new jobs. And so we as a society are going to have to decide what do we want, big government or a vibrant growing economy. And we've had experiments. Reagan experimented with this. So did Donald Trump. So did, quite frankly, John Kennedy, and um, and they got results, and so I guess the question is is do we you know we everyone else says you know science based I'm science based I realize that's not science but it is fact and at some point we have to start making policy based on facts not feelings we have too many people who who feel about issues and as a result 
we have all these kind of, you know, mushy, stupid policies that send jobs to China, make the government big. And then we wonder why people uh, languish in kind of, you know, uh, mediocre circumstances. And it's okay, hold on. It's yeah, because hold on, we, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not yeah, we serious about it. Pulverize. Yeah, we got to go ahead Understood. and uh, kind of summarize because we're pretty much at time. I want to thank uh, George uh, uh, for coming on, uh, joining us tonight. I want to again, once again thank my good friend Larry for being part of the show. Yeah, this is Tom Donaldson saying uh, good night here from the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Hey, I want to welcome everyone to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, I am the co-host of the show, and the host of the show goes by the name of Chief Swag. Chief Swag, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing good, man. How about you? Man, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm going to you know? promote you. I'm going to promote you to host this week. You going you gonna to show me that honor and promote me to the host? Yeah, man, I'm gonna let you make it and be the host this week. Wow, wow, man. So, so let me say this. You know, I I actually wanted to share this with you because if, since you're the host of the show, I think I can be the CEO. How's that? Well, you can be CEO if you don't give me a raise. Then I would. Then then what? What? what I, okay, well. No, you the CEO, you run it. So what I'll be, what I'll do is I'll be one of the board. Of, I'll be the board of directors. Well, if you be the board of directors, then that means you got to pay me. No, no, no. There are certain boards that the uh, the, the, the board of directors get paid. <laughs> but you know, but you know what though, Virgin. One thing we can't forget, we we can't. LA's the board of directors, so we got to break him off some too, man. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Because, you know, you're, you know, you got your chief swag, but he's just swag period because of the name LA. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Swag. That's what it is. Yeah. 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 Well, Hey, we want to welcome our, our listeners to, uh, the show you and the law and, um, you know, it's uh, definitely a pleasure to have our loyal listeners back uh, with us today, as always. And if you're a first-time listener to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, uh, we hopefully that you will be um, uh, enlightened and uh, in very well informed about what we're talking about today. And, uh, and Keith, why don't you, uh, since you're the, the host of the show, why don't you share with our listeners what – you and the law is about what this show well, yeah, is really thing. about. It's about real talk, uh, real talk facts, you know, real talk details about community 
and law enforcement. Uh, more so the concerns that the communities of color have with law enforcement. Uh, also the positive things that law enforcement is doing. Uh, so you've got over 60 years of experience. Uh, you've got uh, police executive experience. But the things we want to do, we want people to know we're real. Um, we, because we're chief executives, we don't always agree with what law enforcement does. But at the same time, we realize that law enforcement does some positive things, too. So that's what we do. It's real talk. Uh, you know, you and the law gives you an opportunity, and we don't take anything personally. So, you know, we want to, we want your questions. We want you to, to participate in the, in the uh, discussion because, uh, you know, uh, every city, every one of you all are depending upon some form of law enforcement to protect you. And if you have a concern, please let us know, and um, let's, let's have a good show, and let's be open. Yeah, and you know, Keith, you know, we uh we've got an exciting show for our listeners and uh you know, we've got a a very good uh a guest that's coming on the show that's going to be joining us uh after uh, our break uh at 6:10 and he is uh, he he has a wealth of he has a, a very good he comes from a law enforcement background um that is very prestigious. He's uh has been involved in some other things in the private sector, but we'll let him talk about uh, himself when he comes on the show. But I'm really excited to have this brother on the, on the show. Uh, he's uh, his group has just uh, made a major partnership with the uh, Miami heat uh, and the Miami P- police department. So he's going to come on and talk to, to us and our listeners about, about that. But, you know, Keith, this has been a, uh, another uh, interesting week uh, that, that has occurred in the law enforcement community, and we definitely want to send out our prayers to uh, to the two uh, police officers out in uh, L.A. who were, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody has seen the, of the horrific video of a person just walking up to a car and shooting them, and now we're learning just how, you know, these two officers survived and actually how the female officer really um just overcome her injuries to to help our partner. So, Keith, we definitely want to make sure that uh, we remind our listeners to to definitely uh, keep the, those officers and their families in, uh, in in their in their thoughts and prayers. Absolutely, my brother. Yeah, absolutely. That's just horrific, tragic, and horrific. And uh, young officers that only been on the force about fourteen months, and uh, so it seems that they're fighters. Uh, and we know that's by God's grace, and so uh, uh, prayers out to them and their families. Yeah, definitely. And and you know, Keith, you know, today I don't know if you caught any of the news uh, today, but you know they had the um, the, the settlement with the uh, Rihanna's Taylor family in, in Louisville. Uh, how that settlement, which it was very transparent, Keith, the fact that they actually very public about the amount of the settlement. And I think which is more important is the actual um, agreement that the attorneys made with the city officials to, to, to on the right track to do some, some meaningful police reform. Uh, But as you know, the family is still uh, dealing with the fact that these officers haven't been charged and that's under, uh, a grand jury, and the, the 
one of the things, Keith, I want to go back to is that this happened in March, right as the pandemic was really starting to to take over the 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 news media. And this deal with Breonna Taylor was not even really fully known until several months later. So, um, you know, that, that is in itself is a tragedy, the fact that um, the family got some resolve with the financial uh, agreement, but they're still dealing with the fact that these uh, officers have not been held accountable. Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's not there's no amount of money that will uh, put this family's uh, mind at ease. I mean, you know, it's not always about money. Uh, they'll never that young lady will never, uh, you know, they'll never be able to hug that young lady again. And so, you know, we talk about lawsuits and settlements. Uh, that's not uh, those are never enough uh, to to um, you know console a family uh, that um, you know this tragedy. So I just want to. Make sure the listeners, you know, hear that we we talk about uh, compensation. You you can never compensate someone for losing enough from losing a, a loved one. But I think it's a, I think it's a step in the right direction that they are admitting that there was some, they had, they, you know, there was they were culpable in, in, in her death. Yeah, exactly, exactly, Keith. Well, hey, you know, Keith, we're coming up on a, a few minutes away from going into our first break and. We want to just let our listeners know that this is a part four series of of what we're talking about is uh, bridging a gap and uh, communities and law enforcement coming together, and and we're going to have uh, like I stated a guest on the show, which his name is is Quentin Williams, and you know a lot of people call him Q, and so I want to make sure that I remind you. Last week you said, hey, if he was a Q, that you know uh, he, he would have to, uh, you know if that was associated with, with his uh, frat. So, so Keith, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to have our special guest on the show, Quentin Williams. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Hey, we want to welcome you back to You Under Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, I am one of the host of the show, uh, Virgil Green, and the the host of the show goes by uh, T-Swag. Well, hey, man. I told you you were the host today. Uh, okay. All right. All by right. De- by well, default, I, I wanna... you're going to be the host, man. By, de- by default. All right. All right. Well, but, but, if, well hey. but if you want me to continue to be the host, man, you know, let me know, man. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, hey, Keith, you know, we, we've got this special brother that's going to be on the show with us, uh, and he goes by, by the name of Q, uh, Quentin Williams. Uh, we definitely want to welcome him to uh, You and the Law. Thank you, gentlemen. How are you? Oh, we're doing, we're doing good, sir. How are you doing? 
I'm doing wonderfully. It's a good day. All right, all right. Well, well, uh, well, Q. You know, I don't think this is your first time listening to the show, but as you know, we uh, we we like to have uh, some fun, but we also have some serious conversations about things that's going on in the world of law enforcement. But I don't know if you listened to the, the tail end of our show last week, where where Chief Humphrey, you know, I told you know we call you Q, and so uh, I, I want you to. You know, he kind of referred to something as a fret. So, you know, I, I'm not just calling them out, but I'm kind of calling them out, Q. <laughs> a lot of people ask me if I'm, a, <laughs> if I'm a Q, if I'm with Omega Sci-Fi. I have a lot of friends who are, but I'm not. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, Q, then, 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 then I welcome you with open arms, man. So I'm, I'm a, you, you're welcome, officially welcome to the show, man. How, how you doing, bro? I'm uh, right. doing really well. Nice to meet you, G. Pleasure's all mine. All right. Please call me. Please call me Keith. Well, yeah. All right. Well, well, hey, uh, uh, Q. With that, we, we want to get into man. You know, share with our listeners. You know, your background and who you are, and 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 uh, we'll definitely get into the conversation about this amazing partnership that your organization is just partnering with the Miami Heat and and the Miami uh, Police Department, and all the other good things you're doing. So, you know, uh, we definitely want our listeners to, uh, to, to learn more about you and, and, and the organization that you uh, are, the, are the founder and CEO of. Well, it's my pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, and it's uh, such, a, such an honor to be speaking to both of you at the same time. Um, so my name is Quentin Williams, and I – I, uh, along with family members, founded Dedication to Community, which is a not-for-profit, a 501c3, that was founded for the purpose of empowering society through education in the areas of upward economic mobility, how to reach your dreams, basically, and justice. So justice has overtaken everything uh, because justice is the umbrella under which everything Falls. Even upward economic mobility is, of course, related directly to justice. And as a part of that justice, uh, that justice platform, the initiative, we educate law enforcement about how to serve better, not how to police better, but how to serve better. And we also educate with law enforcement, we educate communities that are served and we educate and engage them with law enforcement so that we can get people closer to the middle. There is a bridge already built. It's been constructed. We might need to reconstruct that bridge, or we might need to renovate that bridge, but all we do have to do is get people to walk closer to the middle on that bridge to get there. Mm -hmm. I, I, was born, I was born on the island of St. Thomas, in poverty. So when my mother, who raised me and my brother by herself, um, came back to New York with me, we lived in squalor for 17 years. My, the first 17 years of my life were spent on welfare. And during that time, through the crack epidemic, learned a lot about life, learned a lot about building relationships. My mother was the best teacher of, of relationship building. So what we do now is we teach people how to build relationships in a substantive, successful, and sustainable way 
through our Recipe for Reconciliation curriculum. And we teach that across all platforms, corporate America, law enforcement, even those who are incarcerated are provided with this education. Uh, I, was, I was in the FBI. I was, I was an agent. I was undercover for, three and, for two and a half years. I was a federal prosecutor, all of that in Connecticut. I also had the pleasure of working for the NFL office in New York, the Jacksonville Jaguars in Jacksonville, Florida, and the NBA with their what was the D League, the development league. It's now the G League. I was the president of one of their G League, then D League teams with Alex English as my head coach. Um, and so when I left that, I became an entrepreneur out of, not out of want, but out of um, need and because I was forced to. I was fired by the NBA. And when you're fired in, in sports, it, mm-hmm. it just throws you for a loop, uh, especially when you're a front office person. And I became Definitely. an entrepreneur, and that, that's okay. what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I have, I have my own law firm. I have a media company. I have another company called the Q Group, and I also um, uh, run, run the not-for-profit organization, D2C, which is our calling. It's, this belongs to everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Q, I'll, you know, me, you and I, we've met through a mutual friend that uh, Chief Humphrey and I uh, also met through uh, Sarah Banner. And so that's, that's how you and I connected because we were on another podcast show together and, and uh, just, uh, you know, visiting with you then and, and visiting with you, uh, you know, since then, it, it's just, you know, you're doing some amazing things and, and definitely this, this partnership that uh, your organization has partnered with uh, with the Miami Heat is is something that I don't believe any other organization has partnered with a NBA team and with a with a major city uh, uh, police department. So uh, Keith, I mean, it, it's it, he's doing some amazing things, and and you know when you talk about bridging the gap, you're definitely uh, definitely bridging that that gap. Between the community Birds, and police. Birds, let me say Go this, ahead. Q. I will tell you, Q. I will tell you that I'm very, very happy that you're saying that. Well, you know what I'm seeing now? For a long time, you only had a few athletes that were using their platform, and so what I'm seeing now, I'm seeing more and more athletes use, utilizing their platform uh, to uh, bridge the gap between law enforcement and help and work with law enforcement in communities and things like that. And that is amazing. Um, I will tell you that I'm really impressed. I've been in Miami, and I do know that the police department in Miami, uh, because Miami does have a very diverse community, I do know that that um, I've seen the Miami police department work through a lot of tough times. You know, they had a bad reputation in the 80s, and then you know, I, but I but I know they have embraced the heat. Uh, I know they've embraced the Dolphins, and I know that those groups work really closely. Uh, those athletes work really closely with the community and the law enforcement agency, along with the Miami PD. And I'm really excited that that you're doing that. Thank you. And yes, uh, this is this is really the the essence of leadership has been revealed through this process with this partnership between D2C, the Miami Heat, and the Miami PD. To see two organizations like the Miami Heat and the Miami PD step up when they knew they would get criticized initially, step up 
and do whatever they could to pioneer this first-of-its-kind effort. This has never been done in the history of sports. The Miami Heat is the first organization to ever fund and partner in this way. It's not just funding. They are intimately involved with the training. They sit in on the sessions. And to do that in today's environment with the Miami PD, by the way, the Miami PD is the only three-time, uh, three-time credentialed law enforcement agency in the state of Florida. There are only 18 of them in the nation. So because it had a consent decree that it, it met all the standards of, came off of that with flying colors, and is doing such a great job under, under Chief Kalina and, um, and Assistant Chief Goss, because of what it's doing, it has, it has established this extraordinary reputation. So it's taking a risk by bringing in the Miami Heat and D2C in this partnership because it's doing a great job already. But here's mm. the great thing about Miami PD. They think they can be better. I mean, you talk about the, the quintessential uh, essence of humility. That's it right there. No matter how good they are, they're saying we could be much better. We could always be better. And the Heat is doing the same thing by saying we are members of these, this community, but no matter how much we provide to this community, we can provide more. This is, for me, it's inspiring to even be a part of this. I'm so honored, and our team is honored to be a part of this as well. Q, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say, they're not doing it. They're not just doing lip service. They're actually doing something. Um, you know, that you hear a lot of people that say, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and you never see it. But seeing what you're saying is there are tangible results out there from uh, this partnership. Yeah, the, the great thing about it is because we hear it all the time. I mean, we, we've been doing this for centuries, making people aware, having discussions, the town halls, all of that stuff. The awareness is great. You need to have awareness. However, if, if you just have awareness and you have no action, then it's empty. You have to have action. The action that we are taking here is to educate, educating so that a strategy is in place by the end of that education to make us better. And it's all about building relationships. How can we build these substantive, successful, and sustainable relationships in life, not just law enforcement community, but in life? This is transferable to everybody in their personal relationships, their marriages, whatever, business relationships. It's, these tools are good for every aspect of one's life. And the Miami PD and the Miami Heat, even with criticism in the beginning, they said, we're forging through it, we're doing this. And now that we've been through the, the first sessions of it, and everybody is coming back saying, oh, my goodness, this, this is really helpful, this is great. And it doesn't throw anybody under the bus. It's bringing people together in a, in a very raw way. It's bringing people together. Now, now folks are starting to see the value of doing this kind of thing. But there will only be only ever be one pioneer, and the yeah. Heat and and the Miami PD are those pioneers. 
Well, look, uh, Q, before we go to uh, – we're coming up on a couple minutes before we go to our break, but before we go to the break, can you briefly kind of talk about what were, what were some of the, the challenges uh, with this here? Uh, was there some some resistance to it? Kind of kind of speak to us and our listeners about that. Yeah, well, after we held the press conference, a lot of people, because we're so divided, they – Pick sides. I mean, you know, community, law enforcement. Why is community and law enforcement getting together? Neither can be trusted. And that was mm-hmm. coming from all parties um, in, some seg- with, in some segments of society. Not, not all. There were some who okay. bought right into it. But what we're doing is we are educating. We also assist with the communication internally and externally by law enforcement of what they do. So when requested, we help law enforcement with their communication uh, strategies. And then we also, because everything ultimately falls on policy, you both know that policy drives Mm -hmm. everything. We help to develop and guide with policy. But for, for this particular partnership, we started with education. It's all about education. And Folks in the community were not necessarily overly excited that the, their, their Miami Heat were getting together with the Miami Police Department. There were some. Yeah. And, yeah. and Miami, Police, the Miami Police Department had people in their ranks who felt the same way about getting together with the Miami Heat. But this is what's so great about this partnership. We discussed this. We talked it out with transparency. And we made a decision amongst all parties to forge through it because the folks who were critical didn't really understand fully what was going to happen. Now that it has happened, people are starting to realize this is a solution, and solutions are what we need to come to. Yeah. Well, hey, we're going to – Leave it right there, uh, Q. We're going to uh, take a quick break, uh, Q, and our listeners. Uh, you're listening to You on the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players. Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. Hey, we want to welcome you back to You on the Lawn, the Back to the News Radio Network. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that our calls are being screened, so if you've got a question or if you would like to come on air, let the uh, producer know uh, that you've got a question that he can give to us, or if you would like to come on air and, and, and speak with us, uh, or if you can also leave a message in the chat room. But So we've got several ways, but if you're on the line listening, you can listen, but if you would actually like to come on and, and speak with us, uh, just let the uh, producer know. So, um, because we've got a, a great show uh, and we've got a, a great guest on the show, but um, 
before I jump back into to some other things, uh, I want to let everybody know that you can uh, there. So many other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and one of those shows is the Dr. Larry Show. Uh, and the Dr. Larry Show uh, takes a look at politics from a conservative perspective in the Trump era, and golly, the Trump era. So you can listen to him every Wednesday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Standard Time at blogtalkradio.com at L.A. Bachelor, and the podcast on his show every 2 a.m. at 2 a.m., and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in uh, having your own show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, or if you're interested in advertising with us on the Bachelor News Radio Network, uh, reach out to us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. That's labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed uh, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. So, um, Q, I mean, we're... You know, definitely we're just glad that you took the time to come on and talk to uh, me and uh, Chief Humphrey about your uh, organization and to let our listeners know about this here. And the fact that you've got a a major, uh, you know, one of the well-known NBA teams has partnered with with one of the major cities uh, that they're uh, connected with is just a – is groundbreaking, and I think you said that you know earlier that this is something that is definitely has not been done. But my question: Do you see other NBA teams or other NFL teams taking the same approach uh, with their uh, police departments? Well, most definitely, we've we've already been working with other leagues, teams, and athletes uh, to bring these educational platforms to society because their platform is, you know, it's, it's, it's we're talking hundreds of millions of followers, billions of followers oh, yeah. in sports. So we have already been working with them. The Miami Heat, however, because of the hard work of that organization and the Miami PD and Steve Stowe uh, was responsible for this with Michael McCullough uh, with the Miami Heat, what they're doing is so creative in this partnership in that they are a part of the actual training of law enforcement mm-hmm. officers. That's, that's, it's unprecedented. That, yeah. That makes a big difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's all about serving. It's all about how to serve better, not how to police better. Uh, that's, that's the essence of what we do is we facilitate that kind of discussion about how to be better servants. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in Q, another question I have, um, you know, with everything that's going on with our, you know, especially in the NBA uh, and even in the NFL with, you know, the controversy with the players, you know, kneeling and not kneeling and and those players who have really kind of come out and, and utilize their platform and their voice about Black Lives Matter, um, how how uh, and it and it seems like the the front office of the NBA is very supportive of their players and very supportive of what their teams are doing. So, can you kind of speak to how the front office has, if if any, how what kind of role they're playing with this here? 
Well, the, the front office, so the NBA is, is, is behind what the Miami Heat is doing. And the front office of the Miami Heat, they are the advocates for this. They're the ones who made this happen. Michael McCullough is their executive vice president and C, CMO, the chief marketing officer. And he pushed this hard with ownership and with exec, senior executive staff um, Steve Stowe is the one who made this happen. We've been working on this for years, and finally it has come to fruition, but not the way we thought it would. We thought it would be coming to fruition in a way where D2C would educate the players and allow the players to go out and, with education, now speak to their audiences. But this is even bigger than that because it, it is that, too, but it's also it's training law enforcement. That is the beginning. That's where it all must begin. We must begin with mm-hmm. training law enforcement and then allowing that newly trained law enforcement educate and engage with the people they serve. Because when they go into those communities, the communities want to know what they are doing for themselves. And if they, mm-hmm. if they haven't been doing anything to train themselves to get better, they lose credibility walking in the door. If they do the training, now they have credibility. That credibility leads to trust, and you know what trust means. It means everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chief Humphrey, you're kind of quiet. When you guys talk, Uh, I I was enjoying the uh, conversation. (laughs) I do allow people to go in. Don't don't forget to remind people that uh, uh, LA is is monitoring uh, for calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, we want to get that out there. But but Q, listen, man, man, you know, I, I really wish. So let me ask you this: Do you think this just works in major cities, or what about smaller or mid-sized cities? Uh, do you think that this project would would be uh, uh, doable in those uh, categories? Oh, absolutely, in every city. Um, so we launched, a, D2C launched a national initiative in June. We've been doing this work for, you know, a dozen years, but we launched a national initiative. So it's strategically going from state to state and launching in a state for a full statewide, a full statewide program. So before this national initiative, we were training law enforcement in, on you know a project by project basis, we we train law enforcement at the FBI National Academy. We have a curriculum there that we develop with the with with the uh, great folks Matt Rebuck at the FBI National Academy, and we deliver it there too. It's 44 hours. It's a full curriculum. We do it four times per year, but we also do it at the local agency level. Like for example, we're going to Wallace, uh, Wallace, North Carolina. They have less than 20 law enforcement officers there and we're going to train yeah, that. that agency and that's 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 wallace we also are going to be in connecticut next week to train all of the state troopers in connecticut the connecticut state troopers so we have a, a robust partnership with the state of connecticut with the connecticut state troopers and then with the with the with post up there the police officers standard and training council uh, academy so every officer in the state of Connecticut will have an opportunity to be trained by us 
And this is what we're doing state by state, Connecticut, Delaware, the Carolinas, and we're going to also launch Florida. So we'll have five states by the end of the year. It's, each state is a legacy project. We're going to do what it, it take in to multiple get to, states. What would it take to get you in Arkansas, Little Rock? We can talk about it. <laughs> we'll be doing more. We'll be launching another five. We'll be launching another five in uh, in 2021, and we have a waiting list okay. of of folks who because this is this is this is action. This is action, okay. and we have hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are part of this village who are participating in this action. This is it's my calling. It's I know what you do is your calling. So. Whenever we can get great talent together, the village that we have and the village you have and make them one as a collaborative, that's how change happens. That's how this thing moves. Well, and, and you know, uh, Q, uh, one of the questions, you know, you, you have a law enforcement background. You've been a prosecutor. Uh, you've been around law enforcement for decades. And you know this, that there's always some kind of resistance to change. Uh, kind of briefly speak on that before we uh, go into this next break. Uh, what kind of resistance have you, have you experienced with this here, if any? Well, it's funny because uh, when we started this, there was great resistance because the reason why we started it was because I wrote a book, and that book has a provocative title. And that provocative title created resistance both in communities and in law enforcement because the book's name is How Not to Get Killed by the Police. So I heard it from communities, why are you victim blaming? And then I heard it from law enforcement, you're telling the world that we're killing people. And neither was true. Don't judge a book by its cover. The truth is we, we are pro-law enforcement. This book teaches community members how to make law enforcement feel safe when they are engaging with them. And we're pro-community because we are the community and we want the community to be safe and we want them to get the justice they need, but we want them to get home safely. That There was extreme resistance in the beginning. And mm -hmm. we had a chase after people. <clears throat> now we don't have to chase after people because they know what it is. But yeah. in the beginning, oh, yeah, big, res so, big so resistance. And I guess that's why you you just mentioned that you guys have got a, a, a waiting list. So uh, that just goes to show you that um, there can be some resistance, but at the same time, once people find out how uh, how this program really is and how the training is, they they want to be a part of it. Yes, I agree. That's yeah. that's what yeah. it comes down to is the experience of it makes them want to be a part of the mission and the movement. Yeah. Well, it, you know, Keith, I, I want to remind our listeners that, uh, you know, if you're just now uh, coming in and, and, and listening to us, uh, you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And we have uh, joining us uh, today as our special guest, uh, Quentin uh, Williams, who is a former uh, FBI agent, a former federal prosecutor. He's an author and uh, he's uh, has a uh, an organization that um, – has partnered with the uh, Miami Heat and the Miami Police Department, and we're uh, speaking with him about um, his uh, organization called Dedication to a Community. So uh, we definitely want to make sure that you guys uh, continue to uh, listen to us and uh, for the next um, 
20 minutes or so uh, because we've got a, a lot more uh, to, to share with you. And, and, Q, before we go to our break, you know, the Miami Heat is actually playing in the playoffs, and, and you were going to have one of the representatives from the Heat come on and be with you. But since they're in the playoffs, that's why they can't uh, come and join us tonight. But hopefully we can get uh, get somebody back on with you to to talk more about this amazing program. But uh, we're going to jump into this uh, next break. Uh, we're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you've got a clogged up nose, simply stuffy. If you've got a snuffy nose, simply sassy. If the rest of you feel fine, but your nose is out of line, give your schnozzle what it means, simply stuffy. Simply stuffy. From the makers of Children's Tylenol, it has only the medicine your child needs to make a stuffy nose simply disappear. If you want to smell a rose, get the stuff out of your nose. If you take a silly smile, simply stuffy. Simply stuffy. Use as directed. Recovery Month has become widely recognized and does an outstanding job of celebrating recovery, increasing awareness, and acknowledging the amazing work of providers, advocates, people in recovery, and their families. I believe our work together is helping many Americans better understand, seek out, attain, and sustain recovery. What began as a small and very good idea has grown into a national, mainstream, sustained, and systematic public education and support effort, all focused on the message that people recover. Getting the message of recovery right is critical because people take action based on what they hear and see and, most importantly, what they experience. Experience shapes our knowledge, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our action. Of those who recognized their need for treatment but didn't receive care, the number one reason was no health coverage and could not afford the cost. No one in need should be denied the opportunity for treatment and recovery in our country. Hey, I want to welcome you back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, you're listening to one of your, the hosts of the show, uh, and uh, I just go by, I don't have a, a, a name like Swag, so uh chief swag is is uh he's just he's just that important of a person but uh we want to uh welcome everybody who is listening to us on uh you and the law on the bachelor news radio network and we also want to remind you that you can definitely follow us on our social media platform you can follow us on facebook um at you and the law you can follow us on instagram and you can also follow us on twitter at you the law one that's you the law one on twitter and um, we're joined this evening with a special guest, uh, Quentin Williams, uh, who, by all of his friends, they call him Q. Uh, we definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about this amazing um, partnership that you have with uh, with the Miami Heat and the Miami Police Department and, and how that's going to expand um, with, with some other things that you're doing. So, um, you know, with it, – it, Q, you know, you and I, we've talked uh, in the past about some of the, the challenges that law enforcement is facing. And, uh, you know, prior to you coming on the show, you know, we briefly talked about the incident up in uh, Louisville that, that was breaking news today, how they made that uh, settlement agreement. And but I think one of the main things is the, the, the po- some of the policies and some of the reform that they, that they put in. Uh, kind of speak to us and our listeners about what what do you think about 
um, uh, how that may come out with those with those new reforms and policies with that uh, department. Well, you're talking to me or you're talking to Q? Uh, uh, Q, I, yeah, Q, yeah. Okay, okay. Just try, just want to get Q's opinion about what he thought about the uh, uh, the breaking news today with uh, with uh, with uh, Louisville and and how they made that financial agreement. But the, one of the biggest agreement was with the uh, with the reform and the policies that they're going to implement. Is he still there, Keith? Uh, Keith, I think we we may have lost him. Um, so. We'll try to get him back on the line, but uh, we'll. Uh, but Keith, just kind of touch touch on that, and we'll get Keith back on the line uh, about this agreement that the uh, uh, city of Louisville made with the with the uh, attorneys representing Brianna Taylor's family, especially on the reform and yeah. some of the policies that they're going to be implementing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Berger, that's a great question. Uh, you know, really and truly, uh, it, it, it's a shame that it takes that uh, to do that. And I think I think a lot of times, you know, we, we talk about tragedies, but I think in, in, in tragic incidents, there are some positive things that go out of this to prevent. So I think the request from Breonna Taylor's family, her fiancé, is that what can you all do to prevent this from happening? again someone's family so you do have to start looking at all of your training all of your deployments everything that you have in place to ensure uh reform is something that goes on every day so reform should not be new to any law enforcement agency especially any law enforcement executive you should be reforming something every day um that's that's the thing about this profession every day is something different it's a fluid profession and you have to continue to look um, at things, and when we don't do that, we become stagnant. Then that's when we have uh, these incidents. Um, you know, like here, we had to do the uh, no-knock warrant deal. I mean, that had been happening for years. And what we find in law enforcement agencies, Virgil, we we get to the point we've always done it that way. And then what happens is, well, we've always done it that way, and it hadn't been a problem. Well, you know, why wait until there is a problem? So I think um, I think the community of, of Louisville. This is what they expect. I think the, the the local government of Louisville, this is what they want. And, you know, it, it's so big. You're going to see a lot more of this uh, happening throughout the nation. Yeah. Well, hey, we got uh, – Q, we lost you, but uh, you're back with us. Uh, sorry about that technical difficulty, sir. Q, uh, are, you, are you there with us? Well, uh, Keith, uh, we're still having some technical issues with, with Q back on on the line. I think he uh, was muted from us, but uh, we'll get him back on. But you know, uh, you know, the the no not warrant, Keith, is something that um, there was some conversation, especially with the uh, uh, the attorney talking about how the no not warrants really need to be expanded across the country. And, and, and uh, a lot of agencies really need to to, to put in uh, policies that prohibits that, just like what is uh, going to be taking place in Louisville was took place in, in Little Rock. So um, I, I think, you know, there is going to be uh, 
it's, it's sad that a tragic death had to occur for some reform like this here to take place. Is he, did we lose him again, Bert? Uh, I think so. I, you know, I told, was told that he's back on, but, you know, uh, we'll try to get with L.A. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm here. I'm here now. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, hey, sorry about that, man. I guess uh, you kind of got muted off and uh, was never unmuted, but, but it's good we got you back on, Q. Um, you know, Q, we're talking about the um, – I don't know if you kind of heard what we were talking about with the, the, the agreement that uh, the city of Louisville made with uh, Breonna Taylor's family, but, you know, the financial side of it uh, is an amount that has never uh, happened before. But I think one of the most important things is the fact that they have put in some, some reforms, uh, some policies. And, you know, if you would, just if, if you, what's your opinion about that and how do you, how do you see, that uh, moving forward uh, with some, uh, especially when we're talking about these no-knock warrants. Right. Well, I think the most important thing to do from from a phase one perspective here is to be transparent. And so releasing the conditions of the settlement was a good step. You know, it's $12 million, um, but $12 million is not going to get Breonna Taylor back. So, no. so that, and I heard, I heard you say that earlier in the broadcast, the policy issues, what the policies, uh, the changes that will occur, I'm going to have to delve deep into it. I haven't seen what those changes are yet, but I'm going to study it over the next couple of days because obviously there, there is room for great improvement here. If, if you're not willing to evolve as an organization then that stagnant, um, being stagnant is going to cause you to be left behind. And, and it creates issues because society is evolving. So society is evolving as, a, as an organization. Organizations need to evolve. And just like body-worn cameras were not something that we had as a policy consideration six, seven years ago, because of everything that's going on, it's important, not just because we get to see what's going on, but it's the process of being transparent that builds trust. And when we testified in front of the South Carolina State uh, Senate uh, Committee on body-worn cameras just after Walter Scott was killed, there was some tension by law enforcement. Law enforcement wasn't necessarily fully bought into this, but then mm-hmm. – because of the process, they figured out, you know what, this is helpful for everybody. Because 90% of the time, when somebody says something happened, it didn't happen that way. And it's caught on videotape. But the 10% of the time when they say it happened, it's undeniable if there's video evidence. And Walter Scott, there were no, there were no body-worn cameras. There was a hero who took video. Without that yeah. hero, we don't know what would have happened. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I don't think that many people probably remember the, the, the Walter Scott deal, Q, because there have been so many other um, tragic police shootings across the country uh, since then. And, and the fact that we, for, we still continue to see 
you know, uh, unnecessary use of force uh, on officers, despite the fact that there is so much of uh, the, the spotlight is on law enforcement, Q, and, and the fact that you, you still see officers and, and, and doing things that violate people's rights there. There's uh, using way excessive force, just like the incident that we saw, um, I believe it was in, I want to, was it South Carolina or somewhere in Georgia where the, the two uh, sheriff deputies pulled over an Uber car and the fact that one of the passengers in the car ended up on the ground and uh, is end up in a hospital, end up in jail with some with some serious injuries behind that. So um, there's there's a lot of things that the law enforcement community really needs to do to to improve their relationships with their communities and this organ this partnership that that you all have with the Miami Heat and the Miami Police Department is definitely on track to do that. I, I agree. There, there are improvements that we need to make in the law enforcement industry. Listen, we, we are part of the law enforcement industry. That's my brethren. I love my brethren. Mm-hmm. But when you love somebody, you don't just tell them when everything is going wonderfully. You also want them to be the best they can be. And so that's where we are stepping into that void with others to just help law enforcement to be the best they can be. We had um, some, some agencies told us, you know what, we want to be perfect. We have to be on a quest to be perfect. Although we know we're human and that might not be the case, that ultimately we will be perfect. Mistakes will be made because we're human. We want to be perfect. And that's what we want to hear because that means you're coming to this thing with humility and open-mindedness. You're willing to learn. And we... As trainers, as facilitators, we learn something new every time we're in front of that audience. And it's not just one thing. We learn multitudes of things every time we're in front of that audience. This is a time when we all have to seek education. We have to seek insight. And we have to be enlightened by those who have some information that we might need. It's about life and death right now. I'm on a chase to save my son and my daughter's lives every day that's why i Mm -hmm. do this and and an an extension of that is i'm on a chase to save your kids lives grandkids cousins nieces and nephews that's what this is about how do we save these lives and then how do we form a, a a collaborative to allow these lives to thrive using the talents that they have to thrive to be the best they can be that's how we all win Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, hey, you know, we want to remind our listeners that uh, if you're just now coming on to, to the show, you're listening to You and the Long, the Bachelor News Radio Network, and uh, we've got a special guest on the show today is uh, Quentin Williams, and he's talking to us about this amazing uh, partnership with the Miami Heat and uh, the Miami Police Department. And uh, we want to remind you that if you're on the air listening to us, if you've got a comment, just let the producer know. Uh, what your comment is, or if you'd like to come on the air and talk with us and, and ask a question to, uh, to, to Mr. Williams, uh, please do so. That's, the show is about uh, us communicating with you and, and um, sharing what your thoughts and concerns are. So, Keith, uh, you got, uh, you know, we're coming up on the, the last few minutes of the show. Uh, man, I tell you, uh, uh, this Q, one hour goes by real fast when you're having 
a good time and you're having a good conversation about things that is really uh, informing the public. Yeah, it, it always goes fast. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Hey, Q, Q if, I can, if I can say something, man, one of the things that we do, we try to do on this channel, is, I mean, on this, uh, on this podcast, is we try to put more positive in than negative. And you did that today because I think these are things that people need to hear, especially in major cities, the major cities that have been impacted uh, mostly by the protest and things like that. So it shows that, man, this can be done. Uh, if you're willing to, I don't want to say if police chiefs are willing to be vulnerable, I don't like using that term, but I think if they're willing to be receptive to new ideas. So brother, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the work you've done. And I am going to hope I'm soliciting once again, <laughs> for the city of Little Rock. so, so I will get Virgil to give you my information and, you know, no pressure, Q. No pressure. So I just want to say it. Well, hey, let be me say this. You know, you know, hopefully, you know, this won't be the last time we'll have Q on, on the podcast, on the You and the Law podcast show. Uh, we can get him back on and, and definitely uh, have a representative from the Heat come on. And hopefully, you know, for those Miami Heat fans that are out there listening to us, I know you're rooting for your team to – uh, to make it to the championship game. So, hope you know, for your Miami Heat fans, hey, uh, hopefully they'll get there. But, uh, but you know, Keith, this is a, a, great, um, a great program that you're doing, and, and hopefully our listeners uh, will have learned a lot from it and the fact that this is a very positive uh, program, a partnership that, uh, and training that uh, you all, that you're involved with and that, you know, Hopefully we can definitely get you back on and, and where we can talk about this some more because I think, you know, this is something that our listeners, we have listeners that are, that are all over from, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, up all up the west, up the east coast and all around the country. So uh, we definitely want to get this message out about the uh, dedication to community and, and the great things that you're doing now and, and the things that's going to be coming in the future. So, uh, I, I just can't tell you how, how glad we are that you're on here with us. So uh, it's been an amazing uh, hour. It's been my pleasure. And, and please, um, if any of your audience wants to learn more, they can go to www.dedicationtocommunity.org, dedicationtocommunity.org, and that's spelled out fully, dedicationtocommunity.org. Um, I see that the heat's up by three. My man Steve Stowe will come on with us the next time. The VP, he's a VP of, he runs a charitable fund, and he's a VP okay. of, uh, he works with players, and he's, he's responsible with Michael McCullough for making this happen with the Heat. And if, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, they can do it through social or they can do it through our website. We're all over social on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. I'm at MQW, MQBLW. MQBLW or M. Quentin Williams and social for dedication to communities at dedication to community. And this is about solutions. That's what the Miami Heat and Miami PD are doing. They're looking okay. at how do we solve these issues. Okay. All right. Well, hey, we're coming up on a few seconds, uh, but Q, we definitely want to thank you for joining us on you and the law podcast show on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. And, uh, 
Keith, T-Swag, sir, we will uh, get together and do this again. So uh, we want to thank our listeners for listening to you and the Lone of Bachelor News Radio Network. And if you also want to remind you, you can listen to the rebroadcast show of You and the Law. Uh, Check us out on the rebroadcast shows, uh, and that is at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. We'll see everyone again next week. Thank you. And good night from you and the Law the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right, good night.